This is Geek Gab with your host, Norhal and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for, uh, well, it's 2018. It is Saturday, January 6, 2018. We had our big, big break for, uh, for our Christmas broken only. Our big break was broken only by a last-ditch emergency review of The Last Jedi. And uh, if I remember right, didn't we say that was a horrible movie? Oh, boy. It was the worst. Happy New Year, everybody. But, but that's what, I mean, we actually said that on the show. I'm not just misremembering that. Oh, no, that, that wasn't a fever dream. I, I was the one with the fever, if I recall. We, but, didn't give a, we didn't give like a mixed review. We didn't say, oh, yeah, but there were some good things about it. We really just came out and outright said it was bad. Yeah, I think I think out of the, we, we had a 90-minute show, and five minutes of it was stuff that we liked in the movie, and the rest of it was just, it was bad. Okay, because I want to talk about some news here, um, and I just want to I want to make sure we're on solid footing, because I don't remember much of that show, um, and I haven't listened to it since then, so I want to make sure we're on solid footing, that I'm not talking up our prognosticatory abilities more than would strictly be justified, because there are three pieces of news that indicate how big a failure The Last Jedi is. Oh, um, let's hear the it. The first one is... The first one is apparently all of the toys on the shelves are going unsold. Toy sales for The Last Jedi have collapsed. That's not a huge surprise. I mean, the you know, the Ray dolls were infamously undersold after the first one. Because America is ruled by misogynists and the patriarchy. Oh, wait, I'm not allowed to do that. That's my rule. I'm not supposed to do that. I'm sorry. I won't do that again, probably. Um that's the way you start off the year. Break all the rules. Yeah. No, but but yeah, apparently like Lord Snoke getting punked, people don't want toys of that. Um, the the quadruple breasted boob testicle aliens that Luke gets his milk from, people aren't buying toys of that. Um you know, you know what you know what would have sold all of the toys if they had actually gone in that interesting direction when uh, after the the super fan service fight with Ray and Kylo, if if Ray had actually accepted his offer and and joined him to rule the galaxy, that would have sold all the toys. <laughs> um, I mean, even like the new Imperial Death March BB-8, like BB-8's evil alternate universe twin hasn't been selling apparently so um and I, I i i'll be honest folks i have not gone to walmart and i have not gone to target and i've not gone to any other store to verify for myself that vast numbers of unsold star wars tour toys are sitting on the shelves with a thick coating of dust moldering away quietly i have not verified that for myself but the sales figures are down yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure 100% of the BB-8 and BB-8-related sales are just from Jenny Nicholson, the YouTuber. Well. I, that, that would have been funny if you had watched her videos. Oh, I was just, okay. I, I don't know who that is. I just don't. Sorry. Um, those of you in the crowd who uh, watch Jenny Nichols' videos, enjoy that bit of humor. It's obscure humor, like the kind we do around here on Geek Ed. But anyways, um, 
apparently, though, there are some people who still are fans of the Porgs. Um, so apparently some of those are selling. I don't know. That's what the chat says. Uh, second bit of news is that even though, now I'm going to be fair here to The Last Jedi, it is a Star Wars movie up against absolutely no competition during the Christmas season, one of, you know, one of the busier movie seasons in the year, not as busy as the summer, but still a busy season. And they have managed to break sales worldwide of more than a billion dollars. One billion dollars worldwide. It's a lot of money. So we've got to give that to them. Um, but it is still 40% below The Force Awakens. And its first week to second week drop-off was huge. It was immense. In fact, I saw a YouTube video that said it was the largest drop-off in history. Um, larger than the drop-off of the Twilight movies, larger than a drop-off of um, the fourth Hunger Games movie, larger than the drop-off of the eighth Harry Potter movies, the largest drop-off in, in dollar values in cinema history, um, which is generally an indication of a movie that's receiving bad word of mouth. Bad word of mouth uh, causes drop-offs like this. That's the second piece of news. I don't I, think anybody's surprised here. I was going to say, that's why you're not talking, huh? You're, you're stunned and surprised. You're shocked that could possibly be true. I mean, it's it, what did they do? They They... Disney ruined the brand so bad that Star Wars, from now on, it's not going to be this big cultural touchstone. It's just another movie series, and just and, another trash movie series, and, 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 right? And not a, not a good one either. Um, um, even even something like the Hunger Games, which I didn't finish, but the Hunger Games awful script was elevated by a lot of the casting and costuming and acting. Oh yeah, Jennifer uh, Lawrence. You can't say that about the new Star Wars stuff. Nope. Nothing. Not a single performance in that movie. And I've seen John Boyega and other things. I know he can act. Uh, the guy oh, who played... Are Bo you looking Denver. forward to that? You looking forward to that uh, Pacific Rim movie? John Boyega's playing the, uh, the mecha uh, pilot in that one, isn't he? I'm aware it's coming and I'm going to go see it. If that qualifies as looking forward to something. But, but the actor who played Poe Dameron, he can act. He's a good actor. He was in, um, is it Deus Ex Machina? Or Ex Machina, that AI movie with uh, Alicia Vikander. Um, he was in, uh, I mean, he, he's done a good job in other roles I've seen him in. He's a good actor. Not in this movie. Terrible job in this movie. Laura Dern has done some good roles before. Most memorably for me, at least, in Jurassic Park. Her character was completely unlikable. Oh, yeah, by the way, supposedly a large percentage of the reshoots for this movie was making Laura Dern's character more likable. More likable. So what we got on the screen was the nicer, kinder, more audience-friendly Admiral Tumblr hair. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how they I don't know how they thought that that was a good idea. So, terrible, terrible, terrible movie. The last one, of course, is uh, from China. Now, a lot of 
a lot of companies, a lot of movie companies have been banking on the Chinese market to bolster falling box office in the United States. And they typically put in like content specifically meant for China. Iron Man 3 most, uh, most notoriously has entire scenes. Uh, they have a Chinese character who in the American version is in there just a little bit. Uh, but he's a well-known, he's played by a well-known actor in China. And for the version of Iron Man 3 that was released in China, they've extended scenes with that character doing his martial arts coolness just to appeal to the Chinese marketplace. And a lot of movies do that nowadays. It's pretty standard for action blockbusters because action blockbusters are generally the only thing that sells well overseas. They are translatable across cultures. And the more bland and generic you make them, uh, the more relatable they are. And if you stick in some extra stuff to appeal to the Chinese market, uh, the thought is that you'll make a lot of money in China. So that's their goal. Their goal was to go into China and make a lot of money. Would you like to guess how that went? I don't know, Daddy Warpig. Did they make a lot of money in China? They, they made uh, a, a lot of money in China for any other movie but a Star Wars movie. Here's how bad it is. They got beaten in box office in China by a Chinese-made romantic comedy. <laughs> a romantic comedy. Now, you may not remember this, but back in the days when they were releasing The Phantom Menace for the very first time, um, it was up, there was another movie that was counter-programmed against it. Uh, Notting Hill with Hugh Grant, it was a romantic comedy. And the theory the people who made Notting Hill did it on was that, well, all the guys are going to go watch The Phantom Menace, so we'll get the rom-com crowd to ourselves. They released the exact same time, and The Phantom Menace blew them out of the water, but the people who made the movie knew that was going to happen. They were cool with that because that was their strategy. They weren't trying to beat Phantom Menace. They were trying to scoop up all the people who didn't want to go see Phantom Menace but would want to go see a romantic comedy, okay? So Phantom Menace blew the doors off of Notting Hill. So here's the thing. In China, it's reversed. The Notting Hill movie, or the equivalent Chinese movie, beat... The Last Jedi. Wow. More money, more audience, more just blew They just away. stayed home. The audience just stayed home. So <clears throat> the Chinese market was not having any of The Last Jedi. They, that's how bad, those are the three pieces of news, but how bad The Last Jedi has been received by audiences. So I would say, and this is the point of this whole diatribe, why I had to clear this up at the top uh, to make sure we had said it was really actually terrible. It is directly in line with our review. We said it was terrible. Audiences have said it was terrible. And the critics that are, you know, at least the last time I checked, I, I stopped caring enough to check. It was around 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, all of those critics have been proven to be uh, wrong. I'm trying to come up with a polite term, really wrong. So, like, obvious, obviously paid off by Disney wrong. <laughs> or, or, or some other reason. Something about the movie made it more appealing to them than it probably was based solely on the quality of the film. So, we've got uh, three movies. We actually, technically, four movies to talk about today. We've got Jumanji. Coco and uh, Netflix's Bright, uh, Buddy Cop 
movie with Will Smith. Um, but before we do that, you went and saw a movie that I have not seen. Yeah, I well, I couldn't resist uh, checking out The Shape of Water, which a uh, few people are checking out because it, it's basically playing only on one screen in my whole area. One um, screen, huh? That's uh, in all of Seattle? I didn't check Seattle proper, but uh, in my area, there's just one. Oh, that's, I mean, that's all right because it's, it's a little Guillermo del Toro, del Toro uh, romance, actually, which is sort of weird for him. How shall I put this? It was an interesting movie. Um, did you see the last one that he did, Crimson Peak? No, I have not. I wanted to. I haven't. Yeah, that was the one we talked about on the show. That was the one it was marketed as like a as a Halloween movie, and, right? And it was a ghost story, but it was a romance. It was like a is a romantic ghost story. Well, this is is sort of the same thing. Only the it, it's a romance between this cleaning lady who's a she can't speak. She's dumb, and uh, or a mute if you prefer, and uh, the fish monster from Hellboy, basically. It's uh it's set in the fifties and uh, you know at the height of the Cold War, and so there's there's government agents and Russian spy scares and and all sorts of other good stuff. Uh, but it's it's kind of a sweet story, you know the romance between this this uh, lady who has trouble interacting with other people and the monster who who she eventually teaches a couple of signs too. And so you find out that they can communicate and they fall in love and it's, it's weird, <laughs> but it's also a del Toro movie. So uh, the sets are beautiful. The costumes are beautiful. The, uh, the effects are beautiful. It's, it's a, uh, you know, he evokes that strange fantasy world that he apparently lives in uh, judging by all the, all the movies he's made like Hellboy and, and, uh, Pan's Labyrinth, I think, is still his best movie. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's a cool thing. There's there's a lots of things that I, I I didn't work like in the script in, in the movie. So it's not a perfect movie. It's not even a great movie. But um, if romances are kind of your thing, or if if you like Del Toro's monster movies and his sets and 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 sort of thing, you'll enjoy the movie. Uh, uh, I kind of did uh, for all of its faults. I'm not going to go deep into the faults here. I'll just sound like complaining, but um, the the main thing that that bothered me was there's a lot of like it, it should be corny and lighthearted, but the way it's shot and presented, they sort of play everything straight and serious. So the the attempts at humor don't land. You know, the attempts at being fun and lighthearted and silly don't really land. Uh, but that's that's okay because it's it was sort of a fun movie to watch anyway. I have not seen it. Um, I I find Del Toro's kind of as far as movies of his that I've enjoyed, I find that he's kind of hit and miss for me. Sometimes he'll do a movie that I love, like Blade Two. Wasn't that Guillermo Del Toro? I don't recall. Let me check. I'm pretty uh, sure it is because I'm pretty sure he decided to make an entire TV series based off of the vampires he created for Blade Two in a different universe without Blade around. And that would be the strain on FX. Uh, let me see the strain on FX. That's correct. He's he's he writes for the strain. 
he sorry he writes the strain. So, as as far as as far as well, let me put it this way: you're right, it's hit or miss. And you know, if I had to put money down, I'd say that this movie's a miss. Um, it's not bad; it's just a miss. But browsing his writing credits, it is hit or miss. He did Pan's Labyrinth, which is amazing, and Hellboy and Hellboy Two, which were pretty good. Uh, he did the screenplay for Pacific Rim, which was okay. Uh, but he also, uh, I don't know. Let me let me see what he directed. Uh, yeah, he also directed Pacific Rim. Okay. Uh, he did direct Blade Two. I was looking at the at the writing credits. Uh, so you're right. He did direct Blade Two, which was a lot of fun. Because um, there's always some motherfucker trying to ice skate uphill. I, I, what I just love about this is that he directed Blade Two with these vampires that completely got dropped in the sequel to Blade Two. Um, in Blade Three, the sequel to Blade Two, and so he decided these vampires are too cool to just let them sit around doing nothing. So I'm going to make an entire TV series where I get to let these vampires be as bad as they want to be, and then he just lets them loose on New York City. It's uh, the first. I watched the first season. I didn't watch everything else because something big happened in my life that I had to drop like 95% of the TV shows I was following that year. It was 2014 for those of you keeping track. Uh, so that's, that was the last time I got to watch a lot of TV shows. But uh, it wasn't bad. The strain wasn't bad. Um, it's kind of a zombie apocalypse, but with vampires. Uh, and not, and they're pretty terrifying vampires, pretty scary. Are you talking so, about the ones with the that feed on other vampires from Blade Two, the really monstrous ones? Yes, he he takes exactly them, or as close to them as he can get without being sued. Uh, and instead of feeding on other vampires, they just feed on humans. But there's an outbreak of those vampires in New York. Um, oh, cool! And so, um, it, it it's it's actually a, you know it was decent. I'm not saying it's super great, but it was decent. It was interesting. So. If well, you thought those to, vampires from Blade 2 were cool. I'll have to check it out, because, I mean, that sounds great. Uh, I, I, I like the guy's work, but he's got some misses in there. He he did the screenplay for the Hobbit films, which I don't know how much of the Hobbit films are his fault, but they're, they're pretty bad screenplays. you know. But but his other stuff is good. Like, Crimson Peak was okay. It was mismarketed. Uh, it was it was an okay movie. And The Shape of Water is kind of the same. It was correctly marketed. It was actually marketed as a weird monster romance um, and the end product is very pretty to look at, but it's 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 an okay movie. All right. Um, also, those of you who liked, oh, he did Mimic too, and I liked Mimic as far as a horror movie goes. That was a good, that was a decent horror movie. It wasn't super spectacular, but I enjoyed it. Uh, cool. It had uh, Mira Savino in it, who uh, you know is delightful in everything she's in. So the actress, I mean, just because she's a delightful person, so. All right, um, I'm trying to decide which one to do next. Let's do another one that is of that same kind. Good, not great. Uh, enjoyable for what it is. If you go in with your expectations set at that level, you'll enjoy the movie, uh, but you'll forget about it a couple of days later. It's, it's, you know, it's not a memorable movie. It's not a super great movie, but The Rock is hilarious in it. He gets some really great lines. He's um, one of those guys. He's, he's the, 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 the greatest man in sports entertainment. He's he'll he'll elevate even if you're watching total garbage like the GI Joe movies. You know yeah. you just smile when he's on screen because you're like, yeah, it's The Rock. It's awesome. Um, I'm talking about, of course, Jumanji. Welcome to the jungle. 
um, which is it, it's a soft reboot of, of course, Robin Williams' Jumanji. Uh, and, and I had it. I had to clarify this on Twitter. A soft reboot is technically either a prequel or a sequel. So it's technically happening in the same universe, except that they're restarting the series again. And so pretty much everything that happened in the previous stuff is kind of ignored in the new one. So it is a soft reboot. Okay. Um, Typical. And, uh, and I imagine, I'm just guessing, that whoever made it for the studio is hoping to set up a franchise. Not necessarily with these same characters um but I'm, I'm guessing they're hoping they can come back and do this again make another sequel make some more money from it uh it, the plot of the movie revolves around someone finding the jumanji board game from the original movie now if you haven't seen the original movie i'm sorry I, i'm not going to go back and, and re-plumb that the Board game, of course, is this maleficent, uh, malevolent entity that wants to capture people in the world of Jumanji. And so when the guy who gets the board game, he gets it given as a gift, he looks at it, shrugs, and sets it aside because he's got a PlayStation. So huh. he's... He's playing a Mortal Kombat or a Mortal Kombat ripoff. And that means this board game is out of loop. It's not going to be able to get kids anymore because nobody cares. No one's going to play it. So the board game turns itself into an action-adventure RPG. Um, and we see a little bit of the game itself. It's got period accurate or close to period accurate graphics and sounds and stuff. And as a video game as soon as somebody plays it they're sucked into jumanji the difference between this movie and the jumanji with robin williams is that the jumanji and robin williams was all about this new england town i think it was a new england town um where all of the animals and giant mosquitoes and monsoons and giant alligators and mischievous monkeys and, and poisonous plants from the board game's world, from this jungle world that we never see. We never see the jungle world. We only hear about it when Ronnie Williams is describing it, and we get inferences of what it's like based on what comes into the real world. All of this invades this town and eventually is gone away. But we never see the world of Jumanji. Whereas in this movie, we go into the game of Jumanji and into the world of Jumanji. And it's a video game world. This is kind of, uh, in one sense, it's kind of a lit RPG or an American version of what lit RPG, which is, by the way, it's a new fiction genre or subgenre that is gaining popularity that got started uh, overseas and is gaining popularity in America. But the characters, the people who get sucked into the game, find that they are characters in a video game and that they are subject to all of the strangeness that video games inflict on uh, our electronic avatars. For example, they have three lives. Huh. <laughs> they can get... 
<laughs> I have to laugh there because it's it's not just video games; it's old video games. Video games don't have three lives anymore anymore, but it's a, still a exactly. great joke. <laughs> because it's a, it's about a period game. That's why they could get away with it. It's about a video game from you know 1996, I believe, is the year. Okay, um, I love it. Uh, so they have three lives, and if they die, they respawn, drop in from the sky. Um, and come back to life. But if they die three times, they're dead. That's it. They're gone forever. That's the end of their life. So for the first little while, while the people are dealing with, you know, they have three full lives, they're not all that concerned about dying. And then all of a sudden, when they're down to one life, you know, <laughs> things get kind of serious. Um and, and the the obstacles they're fighting have a lot more weight, and that happens just in time for the climax, which is a way that the script writer uh, set up the climax to have a lot of weight, a lot of uh, stakes for the characters is, oh, they're going into the worst boss fight in the entire game, and they are all only have one life. Sorry, spoiler, folks. Uh, although, really, you should have seen that coming. Oh, um, yeah. You, yeah, you can't, you can't set that three-life thing up without knocking them all down to one. Um. So it, it's it's hilarious. They actually access their character sheets. Um, <laughs> and I'm not saying it's super funny, but it is amusing. And it was amusing enough to watch. They get to see their strengths and their weaknesses as uh, characters. Um, one of them has a weakness to venom. One of them has a weakness to cake. And that pays off in a kind of a funny scene. And one of them has no weaknesses. And one of his strengths, this is the Rock character, by the way, one of his strengths is Smolder. Huh. At, at random times in the movie when the character who has, he's this skinny geek in real life, and he's been transformed into the Rock in the game. So all of a sudden he has, you know, huge the Rock muscles, and he's really, really tall. He's got, uh, and at certain points in the game, when he's giving a motivational speech, he'll just kind of stop. And he's got these smoldering good looks. And all the girls are going, oh, oh, oh. It's, it's, it's funny seeing him dealing with that. So Jack Black is in it. Jack Black does a good job. He's funny. It, it's an entertaining movie. It's a light movie. It's a frothy movie. It's not um, deep or introspective. And it's kind of cheesy in a lot of ways. And so if that sounds like not your cup of tea, by all means, don't go see it. But if you're prepared for the movie to be exactly what it is, then you'll enjoy it. Yeah. Sounds like a, a fun afternoon flick. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's good. A good flick that you will, if you, if you spend uh, money to go see it on a matinee or to watch it on Netflix or whatever, you'll, you'll enjoy it. It's a, it's worth a couple hours to go see it's, it. It's not too long. So no surprise. So no surprise that it's uh, it's catching up or have ca has caught up to Star Wars already. Yeah, it you know it's it's a fun movie. It's worth going and seeing. It doesn't spit in the audience's face and act like the audience is stupid. It doesn't show contempt for the audience. It entertains the audience, but it doesn't show contempt for the audience. So, um, which is rare enough in a lot of Hollywood movies nowadays. Okay, uh, do we have any questions in the chat about it before we... No, Daddy Warpig, uh, you totally killed chat. We were having fun chatting about Blade and, and Marvel movies, and, and they do not care about Jumanji at all. Uh, <laughs> we love The Rock, hey, though. We got, we got I, Scorpion I, King fans in the, in the chat. 
I can only go see the movies that I went and saw over the break. There weren't any major other movies that I that I actually could have even gone and seen, even if I wanted to. So no, I mean, I don't. I don't think anybody really wanted to release against Star Wars at Christmas. They just nah. let they just let Star Wars have the Christmas season. Um. All right, let's uh, jump to Coco, Pixar's newest movie. Um, Pixar, huh? Yeah. So the question is. Is this a Ratatouille or Toy Story Pixar, or is this Monsters University um, and Cars 2 Pixar? Because apparently there's two Pixars. There's there's a regular Pixar, and then there's the evil twin Pixar. And the evil twin Pixar releases pretty bad movies, but the good Pixar releases great movies. All right. uh, Which one is it? I think Coco was released by the real Pixar, not the evil twin. Oh, good. Um, had great animation, of course. Had an interesting storyline. The movie is about a Mexican kid on the Day of the Dead, which is an annual holiday in Mexico where people set out pictures of their family and things that person loved in their life while they were alive. And uh, then they, I, I'm presenting this as the movie does. I'm not saying this is the real world. They may have altered it for the purposes of the movie. So if I'm not describing the actual Mexican holiday correctly, you're just going to have to complain to Pixar. Um, and then they lay out a trail of, of flower petals to their front door because their ancestors, their families, are supposed to be able to come and visit them during the Day of the Dead. So it is a way to remember your ancestors. It's a way to remember your family, a way to celebrate their life. Well, this kid, it's a way, it's a day, uh, this kid, what he does is he gets, for reasons that are explained and make sense in the context of the movie, makes sense in the context of uh, this holiday, he finds out that this is real, that there really are spirits of the dead who come back to life to uh, see their family again and visit their family again. And if they uh, are not remembered, bad things happen to them. So he passes over into the spirit world, passes over into the world where all these spirits live the rest of the year, the other 364 days of the year, and finds out that because of what he did and because of what he needs to do there, that he's fading, he's turning into one of the dead. And the dead all look like skeletons. Cool. They resemble who they were in real life, but they're all skeletal. And he is becoming skeletal. It's kind of a Marty McFly effect where in Back to the Future, where uh, you know his head was disappearing and his hand was disappearing. His brother's head disappeared off the photograph and Marty's yeah, yeah. hand disappeared. Only uh, his flesh is turning transparent and he's becoming a skeleton. And and at daybreak, because the holiday ends on sunrise, if he's not, if he hasn't accomplished what he needs to accomplish in the spirit world, that's it. He's he's dead. He's going to be in the spirit world forever. Okay. So it was a it, it was a movie that, like the best Pixar movies, have some strong universal resonant themes. It has some great performances. It has good music. Um, uh, impeccable animation, and it's a very touching family movie. It's it's a movie made for children. It's a movie made for your family, and uh, so it's not a you know 
it's not an edgy, dark, grim, gritty movie. If those are the kinds of movies you like, and, and I like a lot of those movies too, I'm not trying to put that taste down, this movie probably isn't going to appeal to you. But if you like Pixar movies, and if you like Ratatouille um, and Toy Story and things like that, you will almost assuredly like this movie. So it's a, it's another excellent Pixar uh, knocking, you know, knocking the ball out of the park, Grand Slam home run. And when I, it, it just flabbergasts me that when companies crank out something like Boss Baby, um, which I haven't seen, but I watched the Honest trailer, and if they're even halfway correct about the movie, is just insane. It's absolutely beyond insane. Uh, when people crank out bad animated movie after bad animated movie, how Pixar can continue to produce high-quality films, even with the misses they've had, they still produce great work, and uh, I think Coco is another one. Cool. Hey, at least someone's out there doing good work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so sad, Hollywood. So, so sad. Disney hasn't completely destroyed everything it bought. No, not yet. So, um, but John Lasseter has been letting go from Pixar, and I have a feeling that a lot of Pixar's success is due to him. And so I, I am concerned about the future of Pixar, that after he... Uh, has moved on that their quality is going to start to go down. Now, we won't be able to tell for another, you know, two to three years until movies that have been initiated while he's gone uh, start coming out. So that'll be in two to three years, uh, maybe more. Um, so hopefully we'll have some good Pixar films before they, they fall off the cliff. We'll see. Simon Hogwood in the chat mentions that Coco is not a sequel. So maybe that's the trick. Just stay stay away from from any sequels and just stick to the or uh, side stories in the same universes and just stick to their new IPs. Um, yeah, the only Pixar sequels that have really been good are the Toy Story sequels. Um, mm-hmm. And and Cars Three was okay. It wasn't great, but it was okay. It was enjoyable. I haven't seen Cars Two. I've heard it was terrible. <laughs> and then there was Disney's like kind of pretending to sort of be a sequel to it, Planes, but not really actually a sequel to it. <laughs> that was they, 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 just, they just wanted to sell more kids' toys. They, they babies, off. babies love those Cars toys, don't they? All, all <laughs> oh, the yeah. toddlers. My little nephews love Cars the movie and all the Lightning McQueen toys. Love them. Okay. Um, any questions about Coco before we jump on? Uh, yeah, well, it's it's about uh, I, I saw the trailers and it was about uh, Day of the Dead and I remember the kid had a little guitar. Is is the music a big part of the movie? Is the music good? Yeah, the music is enjoyable. I'm not a fan of Mexican style music. I, I just it's the brass is really what does me and I hate brass instruments, trumpets and trombones and things like that. They 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 irritate me. Um, oh, there goes my idea for a jazz show of the Geek Gab. All right. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the music is good. And, and what motivates the movie is that one of the boy's ancestors is this father that nobody talks about because he left his family, he abandoned his family to go off and become a musician. But this boy, the main character, is a talented musician and he wants to follow in the footsteps of his father, but he can't because nobody in the family speaks about the man who abandoned his wife and child and went off to become a musician. So. That's what motivates the movie. 
cool. Uh, or, and it really is. It's all about finding your family. It's all about finding out who you are in connection with your family. It's about the importance of remembering your family, even you know several generations back that that what they went through and who they are affect who you are today and that your family and your ancestors matter to you, um, which is different enough from pretty much anything that we naturally get from modern American culture or any movies. We don't often hear about not just love your parents or love your brothers and sisters or love your grandparents, but also those members of your family who are dead, who died before you were born. Um, and, that they still matter to you because they're your family and what they went through shaped who your family is, which is part of who you are. You have been affected by what happened to your ancestors and the choices they made and the decisions they made. And so those people matter to you and it's a good thing to remember them. Uh, it's a good thing to find out about them. So it's a very, you know, uh, it's a very unusual message that you don't often get out of Hollywood or Hollywood movies. All right, thank goodness for Pixar then. Um, but uh, and I don't mean message in the preachy sense. It's just the, the theme of it, it. That's what it what you can draw out of it. That's what I got out of it. Someone else who might see the movie might get something completely different out of it. But that's one of the themes that I got out of the movie. So and, that, and that's the mark of a good movie is that they don't shove something down your throat. They allow you to get what they mean or not. If you got something else out of it, then that's fine too. Or, or, or more like the the movie, you know, the script is written with a, a consistent message or a principle behind it. Yes. And it's, instead of using the script as a way to, <clears throat> excuse me, hit you with that message over the head, it simply informs the script. You know, it, it the, the, the story comes out of that principle as opposed to the story being a, a, a vehicle for that principle, if that right. makes sense. Um, well, last but not least, uh, the movie that's gotten a lot of uh, noise, at least on my corner of the internet, and we're talking Netflix's Bright, starring Will Smith. And, and you mentioned shamefully, shamefully, that you have not seen it yet. Yeah, I, I, really, I really meant to see it because it, 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 everybody tells me that's Shadowrun, and it, it just looks like Alien Nation to me. It, it's it, just it Alien does. Nation, isn't it? Um, and this is the hilarious thing about it. That, uh, Netflix has decided to make a sequel to Bright. And they've already made a teaser trailer for the sequel to Bright. It came out just a, a day or two ago. So you're going to ask, well, how the heck, if they haven't even started production yet, if they don't even have a script yet, if they don't have any idea what the sequel is going to be about, how the heck can they make a teaser? The teaser trailer is an in-world trailer about a couple of orcs sending in audition tapes to Netflix to act in the Bright sequel. <laughs> so um, they're talking about, well, I could play this character or I could play that character. You know, I'd be, I'd be a really good body if you need somebody to just like lie down and be dead. I'm, I'm really good at that, whatever. But they specifically mention in this teaser trailer, Alien Nation, by name, um, one of the guys, I think if I remember correctly, one of the guys says how, how much he liked Bright. It kind of remembered him of, it kind of reminded him of Alien Nation. Um, 
And then at the end of the trailer, one of the orcs uh, says, you know, and if you want to come play Shadowrun with me, I'm, I'm always up for that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So Netflix has heard their audience. They've heard the comments people have made about it. And, and both of those are accurate. I mean, there are a lot of consonances with Shadowrun, and there are a lot of consonances with Alien Nation. So it's obvious. It, it isn't necessarily that the movie is based off of those. It's just that, that there's some resemblance to them. Um, and Netflix is not being defensive about it. They're not denying it. They're kind of embracing it and making fun of it and still saying, you know what? People like this movie. We're making a sequel. I hope you're uh, uh, you're interested in coming and seeing it. So let me make it explicit for those of you in the audience who don't know what alienation is. I was literally just typing that in chat for everybody who might be a little <clears throat> not as old as us. <laughs> um, in the 1980s, while Ronald Reagan is still president, an alien, and we're talking about alien nation now, we're not talking about Bright. Do not get them confused. Because <laughs> this isn't going to make sense if you get them confused. A gigantic starship with 250,000 aliens arrives in uh, the Nevada, California desert. And uh, they get put into refugee camps. This all happens before the movie starts. President Reagan uh, argues for them to be released into the population, to be integrated because they're going to be living on Earth. And the movie is about James Caan playing this bitter divorced cop, getting saddled with an alien partner played by Mandy Patinkin, uh, who is the very first newcomer to get made detective. And it happens in L.A. That's where the majority of, they call them the newcomers, that's where the majority of the newcomers are settled is in L.A. And so this is a buddy cop movie with an alien and with um, a human being set in L.A. Now, um, I, I enjoy the movie. It's not a, you know, it's not the greatest movie that's ever been made. It came out in 1988, but I really enjoy it. And I go back and rewatch it every now and then because... I find it I find it fun and interesting, but that's um, that's what the setup for uh, that's what the setup for Alien Nation is. So if you can take that that setup and turn it around to where it's not a bunch of aliens arriving on Earth. Instead, it's apparently a world where fantasy races have existed for a long time. Where orcs, elves, both of which we see on camera, we also see a centaur cop on camera. So LA has a mounted horse division. The centaur cop is apparently part of that division. That's and awesome. It is. He's in there just a little bit, but it's pretty cool. And they also obliquely reference that is they. Uh, oh, and they also have a, a a lady who has weird membranes over her eyes. I don't know if she's supposed to be a Lamia or something. They don't. You never hear anything about her. She's just in one scene as a character walks past. And they also mention dwarves. They make reference to a war called the War of the Nine Races. Uh, so apparently there are nine sentient races or nine civilized races, and there are also fairies. Fairies are about a hand high, about as big as your hand, and they're pests. 
They're nasty little non-sentient things who they're like big, huge flies who also break into your house and steal stuff. Oh, like labyrinth. Yeah, kind of like labyrinth, but even uh, but they're not they're not that human looking. They're they're monstrous. Um, so all of these races have existed at least as far back as a couple of thousand years ago, because they specifically mention two thousand years ago or so a character called the Dark Lord, who is uh, an elf. You find out the Dark Lord is an elf. Uses magic to try and take over the world. And an orc named Jirak organizes the races together. He finds out he's a bright. I'll talk to you about what a bright is in just a second, because that becomes important. All of this backstory I'm giving you is not just so I can rattle off world building and exposition until you get bored and fall asleep listening to the show. This actually matters to it. So I'm going to try to do this really quickly. Jirak gets the nine races together to destroy the Dark Lord, but most of the orcs, the vast majority of orcs, actually side with the Dark Lord. They serve him in his attempt to take over the world. So now we fast forward to Los Angeles in modern day, 2017. Orcs are basically an underclass. They are, you know, street thugs, gangsters. Um, they reflect the uh, it doesn't matter how I say this. This isn't me. This is the movie. And it doesn't matter how I say this. This is going to be racist. Orcs are specifically put into the social situations that you typically see black characters or Mexican characters in Los Angeles cop movies. Sure. In, Nothing for example, subtle. Training Day. Nothing subtle about it. No, nothing subtle about it. Um, so they're the oppressed underclass because people remember the Dark Lord, remember him, you know, almost destroying the world, almost conquering the world and killing most of it and ruling the rest. And orcs sided with the bad guy. Uh, and they've been paying for it for 2,000 years. Um, elves, on the other hand, are good-looking. They are wealthy. They have a specific enclave, which is ba basically it's Beverly Hills that is elf only or practically elf only where they get to be pretty and wealthy together all the elves and humans are excluded um and humans are pretty much caught in the middle they're the you know lower middle class or middle class of this world um all the humans are you know depicted as being struggling they're not wealthy they're not politically connected but the elves have got the cream of the crop so that's the social situation. That's the world building of Bright. And into this situation, Will Smith, who's a um, Los Angeles detective who is about five years away from retirement, is saddled with the first orc to become a Los Angeles police officer. Okay. Because of, uh, you know, basically affirmative action. And that's all just background to the movie, though. It sets up the situation that the characters are in, but the social commentary doesn't actually... The movie itself, once the plot gets going, once we get out of introducing people to the world, because you have to have some amount of time introducing people to the world. Once we get out of introducing people to the world, it is 
all about these two characters, and there's some problems there, but I can get to that in a sec. These two characters dealing with uh, the situation that was set up 2,000 years ago. They meet a, um, a group of people who are considered terrorists, who were a holy order to fight the Dark Lord that was set up by Jirak. They're still in the world today, and they're considered terrorists. They're they're hunted down by the federal government. The federal government has a magic task force that cracks down on magic, spell casting, and, and artifacts and things like that because magic can bring back the Dark Lord. And there's an order of elves who are completely badass. They are, uh, and I know you're going to hate this. I know you're going to hate my, this world. My eyes are already rolling into the back of my skull. They are, um, they're like ninjas or Jedi. They just tear through their opponents. They, and they do a great job. The action scenes are great. I love the action scenes in this. They're really, really good. Um, and they just, they're, they're very, very nearly unstoppable. Um, they're like John Wick. If John Wick had uh, superhuman reflexes and superhuman strength. Like like a race um, of John Wick. Like if John Wick bred, no, no, and not, then ten thousand years later, you, you know, the, the they had diverged from the rest of the human population, so that they were it was a race of John Wicks. Not all the elves, just the elves from this. Oh, just tiny, the elite squad of elves. Just just this elves from this tiny uh, terrorist group who wants to bring back the Dark Lord. Um, and, and they use magic. They have access to magical abilities that, that very, very few people ever have. Brights are people who can use mystical wands, uh, and they describe a wand at one point as being a nuclear weapon that grants wishes. Um, and there's a, one out of every million humans is, a, is capable of becoming a bright uh, or, or fewer. And a lot more elves are capable of becoming brights uh, and there's only been, they only mention ever one orc who ever became bright, and that was Jirak. But these elves have access to a wand, and I'm not, that's not a spoiler because one, it's in all the trailers, and two, it's in pretty much the very first actual, you know, cop scene they're in, they run into this. And because of that, they can do some horrific things, um, very, very scary things. And so what the movie is about is these two cops who are cut off from everyone else. They're cut off from their department. They're cut off from all their support. They're cut off from their families, having to survive the night while being hunted down by these super ninja elves and also a bunch of uh, human and orc gangs who want the wand for themselves. So that's what the movie is actually about. And everything else and everything that you think of is like, oh, this is social commentary, man. They're like lecturing us about racism and stuff. The actual movie isn't about that. It's about two cops trying to survive the night when they've got a big target on their backs because they have this wand and everybody else wants it. Because everybody wants a nuclear weapon that can grant wishes. One of the one of the gangsters uh, is in a wheelchair. He's paralyzed from the waist down and he has a colostomy bag. And he says, give us the wand uh, or we'll, you know, we'll lock all the doors to this place and burn it down and then take it from your ashes because he wants to be able to walk again. He wants to be able to make love to his wife again. And he wants to be able to not have a colostomy bag. So he wants this wand. And you can immediately see 
That's just one case where they illustrate vividly why people would want this wand so much. They're willing to go to war in L.A. for it. And these two cops are just trying to do the right thing or just trying to get out of get out of this situation alive. That reminds me a lot of a great movie that we were just talking about recently uh, with with some friends. Uh, did you see End of Watch? Yes, it's by the same director. It is. David Ayer directed End of Watch, and he also directed Bright, and there's a lot of similarities between End of Watch and Bright. There's also a lot of similarities with The Assault on Precinct 13. Um, either one of those, if you've seen either one of those. So it's it's it, all these influences from Alienation to End of Watch uh, to Shadowrun, they all sort of come together in a, in a Will Smith vehicle. Yeah, and, and, and so that's why when people say, oh, it rips off Shadowrun or oh, it rips off Alienation, it's like, well, yeah, it's got elements of that, but it's got elements of a lot of things in it. And it's not directly photocopied from any of them. And it, it's not surprising. The writer was Max Landis, um, who also wrote uh, American Ultimate. Uh, that kind of... Um, anyways, he's written a lot of movies, and he's a geek. He showed up on uh, Red Letter Media to defend... Uh, what he had done as far as American Ultra, there we go, um, to defend uh, Chronicle. He wrote Chronicle, that kind of found footage superhero movie. Um, he's been the writer on, um, let's see, Victor Frankenstein, uh, Mr. Wright, uh, just a, a bunch of, um, a, a, a bunch of, movies that come out of a guy who's really, really familiar with American pop culture and geek culture and is remixing them and trying to do a good job of it, not trying to just regurgitate everything. So American Ultra is about a, it's kind of Jason Bourne. If Jason Bourne had not had his memory removed and became a handsome looking guy with a hot, um, German chick, but if he had had his memory removed and was shoved in a small town and became a total stoner, because that's what the CIA programmed him to do. Huh. Um, again, that's spoilers for a two-year-old movie. Sorry, folks. Uh, I liked American Ultra. Again, it's not the super greatest movie I've ever seen, but it was uh, it was a fun action movie, and it's not a stoner comedy. They sold it as a stoner comedy. It's an action movie. Chronicle was also very well done. Uh, he wrote that, and it's about three kids who become superheroes and one of them kind of goes, you know, not surprisingly, if you're given superpowers, one of them goes kind of bad. Hmm. So I, I, uh, well, I like it. I, I like, um, it, it's the way people, I guess it's the way people really create things, right? They, they've got their influences and they, and they use those influences and they recombine them. And if, if the end product is, is still original and good, then it's not, it's not a ripoff. It's, it's just, it's something new based on these, the shared cultural influence. Like, I mean, sorry to go back, but it's like star Wars, you know, the original star Wars was, you know, a hodgepodge of influences plus kind of a, you know, rip off of a couple of movies in, in terms of plot structure. Yeah. So, the question people are going to ask now, okay, you've gotten this all, the, all this out of the way. Was Bright good? I enjoyed Bright. There were some weaknesses in the plot. There were some um, weaknesses in characterization. Um, 
the characters weren't perfectly consistent. It's kind of the only spine running through the characters that makes them seem like the same person is the actor giving the performance. Uh, Joel Edgerton plays the orc. Uh, Jacoby and Will Smith plays, you know, honestly, he plays Will Smith. Or he plays the character that Will Smith plays on TV. So, or in movies. So, um, But I enjoyed the performances. David Ayer is a great director. Um, they did a great job with the special effects. They did a great job with the action scenes. Um, and they did a good job vividly presenting a world. And I get why people think it's preachy, but I don't think that Max Landis intended it to be preachy. And you don't have to watch it with the preachiness in mind because the movie really does not preach to you when you get to the end because at the end of the movie what makes the difference what actually solves the situation is not the government coming in and and making sure everybody's fair and distributed and bringing justice to the hood and it's not people getting together and and realizing that that racism is is just bad, and so we, we can all get along now. And and you know, it's not some woman coming in and ordering, uh, and, and not Admiral Purple Hair, Admiral Tumbler Hair coming in and ordering uh, Will Smith and Jacoby around. What makes the difference at the end of the movie is personal courage and heroism and refusing to give in to evil, even though once you give in to evil, you're off the hook. They'll let you go. You can just walk away and take your family and never look back. It's courage and heroism in the face of evil and doing the right thing just because it's the right thing. That's cool. what makes the difference at the end of the movie. And so when people say this is a political movie or movie with a political message, I can definitely see how in the structure of the world that you could get that message from it, but that's not the point of the author. And, um, that sort of social setup isn't really original to this movie. It came definitely with the elves being rich and wealthy and the humans in the middle and orcs on the bottom. Um, I'm not sure that's explicit in the original Shadowrun necessarily. It's uh, Although there's a lot of that in the original Shadowrun, especially with Tir Nanog and especially with Tir Tanjire in just north of California, the California Free State. So yeah, there is a lot of that in Shadowrun, but this movie, it's a lot, in this, in Bright, it's a lot starker. Um, so yeah, there are some weaknesses to it, some weaknesses in plot, some plot holes, some things that aren't really adequately explained and just happen because that's what's in the movie. But it's a fun movie. It's an enjoyable movie. A lot of great action scenes. And Will Smith and uh, Joel Edgerton uh, both do a, a great job in it. And so, you know, I, I'd recommend if you have access to Netflix, watch it. It's it's definitely worth watching if you like buddy cop movies, if you like fantasy movies, if you like um, Will Smith movies. Um, and the human, the federal magic task force sends two agents out to get involved in this. One of them is an elf and one of them is a human. And the human is this big burly guy with red hair and this red beard. And he's not in the movie a ton, but he's funny. He does a great job in it. Um, so it's worth seeing. Uh, it's worth seeing just uh, just on that basis. 
uh, on the basis of interesting characters doing interesting things. Joel Edgerton plays the orc. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie Warrior, the MMA movie. He's the main character in Warrior. He's the uh, brother who has a family and who's a teacher by day. He's been in a ton of other movies. He's had a really busy career, but they're not all movies that uh, people necessarily saw. He was in Zero Dark Thirty, which I really, really liked. Um, and... Uh, so he's a good actor. He does a good job as the orc. Uh, and you can't even really tell that it's uh, that's him under the makeup. So, yeah, go see Bright. I, I enjoyed it. Awesome. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to load that junk up on Netflix uh, this weekend. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's, that's everything on Bright. I enjoyed it. It's worth seeing. Hey, Daddy, we're and it's not. I think I think we're done. Yeah, we covered all the movies we need to cover. Um, is, do we have any like announcements? Were we announcing anything? No, I'm, uh, but there's lots of good stuff going on. We we got a couple of things to look forward to in the next couple of weeks. We're gonna, I mean, we're gonna try to talk about uh, WorldCon. If you thought the if you thought the drama with the Hugo Awards was over after the after the puppies campaigns flared out, who boy, we got stuff to talk about. <laughs> coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I also talked to Jason on Spock and Nick Cole. Um, and uh, we're going to be bringing them on the show, hopefully in the next couple of weeks um, to talk about the launch of galaxy's edge, which is their new military SF series in a, in a star Wars EN universe. It's like, what if David Drake wrote uh, instead of writing hammer slammers, what if he wrote star Wars? Um, and that's what the series, their series of books, they have just started releasing uh, six, seven months ago. And they've gone to the bestsellers list. They've gone to the bestsellers list on Netflix. They got an offer from the premier, um, what do they call those? Uh, spoken word books, not just audible. Um, the premier company that makes those books. Um, they used to be called books on tape. What's the modern term? Audiobook. Audiobook. Thank you. Audiobook, the premier audiobook company called them just after the very first one was released uh, and said, we want to make, we want to sign up for the entire series. We want to pay you money. Series into audiobooks. Um, and Nick just hinted today that there are going to be comic books of Galaxy's Edge coming out. I've enjoyed the series. I've talked about the series before. I recommend it. If the description, what if David Drake wrote Hammer Slammers, uh, instead of writing Hammer Slammers, wrote Star Wars, if that is at all intriguing to you, if you like the thought of a Star Warsian universe that's been stripped of all the garbage that showed up in the prequels, all the garbage that showed up in the force awakens all the garbage that showed up in you know even in most of rogue one and all of the garbage that destroyed the last jedi to take us back to the beginning of the show go read galaxy's edge it's well worth it look don't skip any of them they're very entertaining um in any case uh they had a specific method for launching their books that was very successful and i want to bring them on the show kind of do a uh a on the books episode, even though Brian's left us and, and uh, that may be news to people. Brian Niemeyer has left the show. We wish him all the best of luck. And, and at some point in the future, we may have him on as a guest when one of his other books comes out, or he may come back uh, to the, you know, geek gab network and do on the books episodes, but I want to do an on the books episode with uh, Jason and Nick. So we'll see how that goes. D do you have anything like 
Oh, I don't have any. I don't have anything lined up for uh, for talking about about games or or anything like that. If I if I have a game specific topic, we'll schedule a game a game night. I don't do it regular like uh, like this show. All right. Well, we had a we had a great Christmas break. We're coming back for the New Year's. We're excited. Um, there's a bunch of stuff coming out soon as far as movies, and we also want to get into talking about books and book series and bringing authors on the show again. Things that we haven't been able to do this last year because despite how terrible this last year has been in terms of what the quality movies released and um, the amount of money that Hollywood is seeing from them has been dropping as well. Um, we had so many of them that that was most of the show for the last like six, seven months. Um, but we have coming out Black Panther in February for Black History Month. They're releasing Black Panther. And after that, in May, they have Infinity War. And then um, in November, December of next year, they have another Star Wars movie, Solo. It's going to be awful. It's going to be legendarily awful. I'm predicting it's going to be worse than The Last Jedi. Um, and I'm safe in that prediction because, one, I know it's true. But, two, it'll be a year from now. And who's going to remember what my prediction I, I won't even remember what my prediction was a year from <laughs> now. <laughs> um, and there's also another Marvel movie coming out a year from now. And I don't remember which one. It, I, it, it, it might be Captain Marvel. It might be. Oh, we're remember. we're gonna. If you thought 2017 was a disaster for movies, we're we're gonna have. Um, they're gonna try to release a, a Han Solo story, uh, and and it has to uh, go up against the new Avengers, the new Deadpool, the new Incredibles, and there's they're even making another Jurassic World because America just can't get enough of Chris Pratt. Yeah, he, he's it's, about it's, the only actor who I still respect anymore. The only A-list actor I still respect anymore. It's 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 going to be a crappy year for sequels again. The the, the geeks are going to be unhappy. Uh, and and fortunately, it looks like Netflix might be coming through with some good stuff. So um, it may be time to just not go to the theater anymore and watch stuff it, on streaming. It may be by this time in 2019, we're still going to be doing the geek gab, but. Geek, it'll mean something else. All the geeky stuff will have moved on to other areas instead of the the fun mainstream stuff that we've been enjoying for the past few years. Um, also, the Pulp Revolution crowd has apparently been getting busy on Steam it, uh, and so I want to um, I'm going to try and find a couple of the guys that are are currently posting on Steam it. It's a blockchain based blogging system with its own cryptocurrency. Um, and people are posting pieces of stories there and theoretically making theoretical money that they can change into real money on Steam. Uh, S-T-E-E-M, Steam. Uh, or oh, Steam, cool. not, not Steam, the video oh. game thing. So if, if that takes off, that'll be a great way to uh, find new authors and, and maybe hand them a few shekels for their work. Yeah, it's it's a little strange though. I, I I don't see how the economic model works. I don't get where the money's coming from. Hey, why don't we do um, a little research and chat about it next episode? Uh, I have done some research. That's what's kind of annoying me. That's why I wanted to bring some of these guys on. Uh, but I, I I know several Pulp Revolution people. I'll run them down and see if somebody wants to to come on and talk about their experiences with it. So these are all show ideas we're having right now. We're kicking them around. We are not just uh, you know it's a brand new year. We're excited about the show. We're grateful to be back. We've got ideas for new episodes. We've got guests. We're getting lined up. I talked to John Delarose today. Um, I need to go. I talked with Nick. Uh, just before the Christmas break. So we want to get these shows ready to go and uh, looking forward to 2018, looking forward to uh, 
talking to you guys, talking about books and movies and TV shows and, um, you know, maybe Magic the Gathering, um, whatever. So do, do you have any last words before we kick off? It's great to be back. Happy New Year to you, Daddy Warpig, and everybody uh, listening online and hanging out in the chat. Good to be back. Thanks for coming and listening live, folks. We uh, hope you enjoyed the movie, and uh, don't you worry. Don't you fret. We're signing off for today, but we will be back.